Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for August 12th, 2016. I'm your host, Brian Cardile. I'm very excited to welcome you to this week's edition of the program, which issues each Friday and features commentary from practitioners, jurists, and academics regarding appellate issues of salience. We've got two terrific guests this week. One will discuss a timely issue at the overlap of trademark and First Amendment free speech law. The other guest will continue our summer SCOTUS preview series, today regarding a fascinating death penalty appeal posing essential questions of criminal punishment, specifically here, at what point is a defendant too intellectually disabled to be subjected to capital punishment? First, Jean-Paul Jassy of Jassy, Vic, and Carolyn will visit to discuss the Disparagement Clause, a 1946 statute, part of the Lanham Act, that prohibits the registration of trademarks that tend to disparage or bring into contempt or disrepute people or groups. The clause gained some attention two years ago this month when a federal trademark panel employed it to cancel six trademark registrations owned by Washington, D.C.'s professional football team, the Washington Redskins. In response, the team challenged the disparagement clause as an unconstitutional restraint on speech and freedom of expression, and also as unconstitutionally vague. The Redskins lost in a Virginia district court and presently await oral arguments before the Fourth Circuit, though the team in April petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court to hear its appeal before the Fourth Circuit renders a ruling, because petitioners in another similar case hopefully await a SCOTUS circuit on essentially the same issue. In that case, a group of Asian Americans formed a rock band and, attempting to reappropriate what's generally regarded as a slur against people of their ethnic heritage, named the band The Slants. The group sued when the Federal Patent and Trademark Office denied its application, citing the Disparagement Clause. The band's appeal met a very sympathetic en banc panel in the Federal Circuit, which authored a thorough judicial dismantling of the Disparagement Clause and, in no uncertain terms, deemed it to be a clear contravention of the First Amendment. Mr. Jassy will discuss the likely future of these two cases and the potential demise of that contentious 70-year-old statute. Our second guest is Anna Rose Matheson, a partner with the California Appellate Law Group in San Francisco. She'll continue our SCOTUS summer preview by considering the case of Moore v. Texas, in which a criminal defendant with significant intellectual impairments awaits a death sentence for a killing he committed during a 1980 robbery. The salient question here is whether it constitutes a cruel and unusual punishment to execute a defendant who is potentially clinically mentally retarded. Bobby James Moore, the defendant here, whose IQ hovers around 70 and who, into his teen years, needed constant training to discern days of the week and to tell time, has adamantly maintained that the fatal 1980 gunshot was unintentional. Nonetheless, Texas courts have rendered and affirmed multiple times Moore's capital sentence. In its most recent affirmance from just last year, a Texas appeals court applied 1992 medical standards to determine that Moore is indeed mentally fit to be killed by the state. This application of generation-old science seems to contravene United States Supreme Court guidance from a 2002 case in which the court encouraged states to apply currently prevailing medical standards in determining the mental fitness of defendants, though that 2002 case, Atkins v. Virginia, provided no bright-line guidance as to when a defendant is too intellectually deficient to be put to death. Perhaps this term, the court will offer more definite prescriptions. Another issue raised in the case, whether Moore's now 36 years between crime and execution, including many in near-constant solitary confinement, represent themselves a cruel and unusual punishment, was denied review by the court. Ms. Matheson will discuss the many vital issues involved here. 
But first, and as always, I'd like to remind you that CLE Credit is available for your having listened to this program. You can find a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. And with that, let's move down to my conversation with Jean-Paul Jassy. We're very happy to be joined now by Jean-Paul Jassy, partner with the firm Jassy, Vic, and Carolyn here in Los Angeles with an office as well. In San Francisco, Mr. Jassy litigates principally in areas of media, entertainment, First Amendment, and has represented clients in prominent cases in, in these arenas, including one before the United States Supreme Court. He has taught classes at UC Irvine School of Law, USC School of Law, and, and Southwestern School of Law. And not least, he contributes columns occasionally to the Daily Journal, including one that we'll be chatting about today. Mr. Jassy, thanks for being on the podcast. Hello. We're chatting today about federal trademark law and specifically how it treats registered trademarks or applications for trademark registration that could potentially offend or disparage people or groups. This is an important issue now principally because it's the center of a couple of federal lawsuits, one that's gotten some measure of attention brought by the NFL football team in Washington, the Washington Redskins, and it's also the center of another federal lawsuit, one that's probably a bit less known by a, a band from, I believe, Washington called the Slants, a group of Asian Americans. And those lawsuits center around what's referred to as the Disparagement Clause, which is in Chapter 15, I believe, of the U.S. Code and was enacted in, in the 40s. Um, so since that's the center of certainly these two cases, Mr. Jesse, could you walk me through what the Disparagement Clause is and what it prescribes? Sure. So the Disparagement Clause says that a trademark will not be refused by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office unless, and there's a lot of ellipses here, but I'll just read it straight through, as if uh, it had no ellipses, unless it consists of matter which may disparage persons living or dead, institutions, beliefs, or national symbols, or bring them into contempt or disrepute. I understand, obviously, the Washington Redskins registered multiple trademarks relating to to their franchise a few decades ago, um, and obviously over the the past several years, there's, there's been a bit of discussion in, in the Washington area and, and more broadly about whether or not their mascot disparages Native Americans. The logo has a Native chief with a traditional headdress, and obviously the term refers to the color of their skin. But at the time they registered the trademarks, they were successfully registered. And then just a couple of years ago, I think plaintiffs successfully brought a case before the, the trademark trial and appeals board to, to revoke that registration. Is that right? That's right. There were six trademarks registered between 1967 and 1990 for the team. And there was an effort a while ago to try to have them canceled. And it made some headway, but then ultimately the case uh, was dismissed. And then there was this new case that was brought relatively recently in the Trademark Trial and Appeals Board. We'll just call it the Trademark Board for short, where the board uh, retroactively canceled all six of the team's federal trademarks. And that's sort of noteworthy, the retroactive application there. I think that's, as you write in your column, I think the first time that a registration has been retroactively revoked, usually maybe if something is offensive, it's it's not registered. But this was the first time uh, a trademark had been retroactively revoked. Right. So the team says that this is the first trademark to be retroactively canceled since 1870, And it says that it's the first ever to be retroactively canceled under the Disparagement Clause when it came into being uh, in the mid-40s. Could you walk me through a little bit of the the Trademark Board's reasoning in that ruling? 
Sure. The, the trademark board was looking at the marks to determine whether they were disparaging to Native Americans. And what it looked at was whether it was disparaging to a substantial composite, not necessarily a majority, of the affected group, meaning Native Americans, and not just Americans as a whole. It determined that the marks were disparaging at the time they were registered, in other words, dating back to 1967. And uh, the board rejected a latches or delay defense, saying that it would be unfair to apply that defense given the public interest in stopping offensive trademarks. Obviously, the, the team was unsatisfied with this result, so they filed suit in federal district court. Can you tell me specifically the claims that they brought? I think one obviously focused on, on First Amendment free speech rights or freedom of expression rights, at least. And I think they also brought some claims or a claim related to vagueness. Um, what exactly was the team arguing? Um, and it's the case in, in federal district court. Right. So the reason why the team went to district court is because a trademark board's ruling doesn't take effect until all appeals are exhausted. And it is possible to go to federal district court and ask the federal district court to review what the trademark board has done. The core of the team's claims relate to First Amendment challenges. There's also challenges related to due process because of the delay. But really the core of it and what we're talking about now are the uh, are the First Amendment challenges relating to the vagueness, relating to whether it's a content-based restriction, and other related challenges as well. Uh, and the district court was not persuaded by the Redskins' argument, I believe. No, the district court was not persuaded. It rejected all of the First Amendment challenges. It said that the law did not restrict or prohibit speech because the team can still use the name if it wants to, just without federal trademark protection, is what the district court said. And the district court also said that trademark registration is really a form of government speech uh, to which the First Amendment does not apply. It was citing to a recent case uh, called uh, Walker, and in the Walker case, the United States Supreme Court said that uh, certain logos and emblems, in that particular case, it involved a Confederate flag on license plates, was actually government speech, and government speech is outside the regulation of the First Amendment. And so the district court, uh, in ruling against the, the team in Virginia, also said that um, trademark registration is a form of government subsidy where a measure of content control is permissible. And the example that the district court gave is that U.S. Customs will seize goods with infringing marks for registered trademark holders. So mm -hmm. because you get that benefit that there's more room for the government to control the content of speech, even if it weren't considered government speech, which the court concluded in that case that it was. So because there's government governmental interplay in a couple of different areas here, the, the First Amendment protections are a bit diluted compared to First Amendment protections to, to typical speech. That's what that district court in Virginia held. That's right. Can we talk about the vagueness argument for just a second? It does seem like in the clause that you read from the, the trademark office is, is meant to determine whether certain things will offend certain people. That's, that does seem to be a bit of a challenging thing to know. I mean, I think in your column you wrote that sometime this can sort of lead to seemingly asymmetrical results. I think you wrote that one trademark saying that Satan was a Republican was denied, but then a different one that says that said that the devil was a Democrat was okayed. And also, 
I believe recently there was a poll conducted by the Washington Post to attempt to discern a bit whether, in fact, folks felt disparaged by the use of the term Redskins by the team. And I think roughly 500 folks were were polled. And the results of that study, query how authoritative it is, um, revealed that at least among that group, nine out of 10 were not so offended. Does it strike you that the statute has, you know, particularly problematic dynamic and that it's hard to know by what people are offended? Yeah, I do. I think that the statute has some serious problems with vagueness. And that's one of the main arguments that the team is pushing in the Fourth Circuit on their appeal from the district court's decision. There's a lot of parts of the disparagement clause that I think have problems. What the team was really pushing in particular was that the term disparaging itself is vague, and also the substantial composite test, which is not actually part of the language of the statute, but it was the test that was used by the trademark board and has been used in other contexts, is also vague. But, you know, those aren't the only phrases that I think have problems in the statute. You've got uh, whether or not something is going to bring persons living or dead, institutions, beliefs, or national symbols into contempt or disrepute. In the phrases contempt or disrepute, they have uh, been interpreted to have application and meaning in certain contexts, but this is a really um, broad approach suggesting that just simple beliefs could be disparaged or held in contempt or disrepute. It's hard to know what we're talking about when we talk about beliefs. You mentioned that there's the, the mark, have you heard Satan is a Republican, it was rejected for registration, but the devil is a Democrat, registration was accepted. And so, uh, you know, uh, how is someone supposed to know what is going to be accepted and what is going to be rejected? And doesn't that lead to other problems like content-based discrimination against particular kinds of speech, which is another argument that was raised in the Fourth Circuit by the team. Touching on that Fourth Circuit appeal, this brings us to to the other case that we touched on in the opening brought by a rock band comprising Asian Americans with the, the name The Slants. Uh, so I believe sort of coincidentally with the Redskins filing, that band had brought suit after its trademark application for the name The Slants, um, typically a, a derogatory term sometimes applied to Asian Americans. Uh, that trademark was rejected by the trademark office. The band brought suit and eventually won a result in the federal circuit. Now, as a result of that, the Redskins are hoping to have the, their case brought before the United States Supreme Court, even before the Fourth Circuit has a chance to hear the matter. The rock band, which is led by a front man named Simon Tam, so the name of that case is In Ray Tam, he, they did win in the federal circuit. Of course, the, the, the factual circumstances are a little different because in the Tam case, the registration for the band name, the Slants, was rejected. Uh, in the first instance, whereas with the, the football team, it was accepted and used for many, many years and then was retroactively canceled. And so that's part of the what's happening right now um, with respect to these two cases as they go to the Supreme Court for potential review. And we're waiting to hear if the Supreme Court's going to take one or either of the cases. But the, the rock band won in the federal circuit and, and, and got a really quite a robust ruling saying that the disparagement clause is unconstitutional. The government's appealing that one. The government is seeking review of that ruling from the federal circuit. In the context of the football team, they are, as you mentioned, in 
the Fourth Circuit is fully briefed, and there's still no decision, of course, from the Fourth Circuit. But what the team is saying is, we don't think you should even take the TAM saying to the U.S. Supreme Court. We don't even think you should take the TAM case. It was correctly decided by the Federal Circuit, and the Supreme Court shouldn't review it. However, if the Supreme Court does grant review in the TAM case and uh, does take on the task of deciding whether or not the disparagement clause is constitutional, then, the team says, then you should take our case as well. And you should take it before the Fourth Circuit even rules because these are basically companion cases that are addressing the same fundamental issues but uh, under different factual circumstances where you've got one circumstance where the, the marks were registered and then retroactively canceled and then another circumstance where the marks were never registered at all and both under the disparagement clause. And so the team is saying, really, you should hear these two cases together if you're going to hear the TAM case at all. That's the the procedural posture right now. Maybe teasing out the Federal Circuit case just a little bit more, could you tell me why in the Slants case, the Federal Circuit decided the disparagement clause was unconstitutional? So the Federal Circuit sitting en banc ruled nine to three that the disparagement clause is unconstitutional. And they really went through carefully and uh, talked about a lot of different reasons why the disparagement clause is unconstitutional. The court said that uh, the government cannot reject marks that it considers disparaging, and it cannot refuse to register marks that it believes will be disparaging to others. The Federal Circuit said this was unconstitutional viewpoint discrimination. And it acknowledged that it's opening the door to offensive marks. However, the Federal Circuit noted that the Supreme Court has repeatedly held that the First Amendment protects even offensive and hurtful speech. And so the court said it's really self-evident that the disparagement clause is content-based and subject to strict scrutiny, meaning there had to be a compelling state interest and narrow tailoring to that interest. And it noted, like we've been talking about, that certain groups are being treated favorably, such as the suggestion that the devil is a Democrat, that registration was accepted, and then other groups are not treated favorably, such as, have you heard Satan is a Republican? That was rejected. The court also went even further and said that trademark registration is not government speech. So it's in clear disagreement with the district court in the in the football case, and said that really trademark registration is a regulatory activity, and gave an analogy saying the government couldn't deny a copyright to books that it found offensive, and so it shouldn't be able to do that to prevent a trademark that it finds offensive. The court really took the whole panoply here and went through and kind of shut down all of the government's arguments in the Federal Circuit case. The Federal Circuit also held that trademark registrations are not a government subsidy exempt from First Amendment analysis. It's a regulatory regime, and the government's not trying to get its message out through spending And in any event, the trademark office's operations are really underwritten by the registrants themselves. So that argument did not did not hold water in the eyes of the Federal Circuit. And finally, the Federal Circuit rejected another argument that's been raised, which is the trademarks are just commercial speech, and that's all, and so they're therefore entitled to a lower level of First Amendment protection. The court said, look, the disparagement clause 
is not just about commercial speech. And in the particular case of the rock band, um, it was about expressive speech because what the rock band was trying to do was to take back this disparaging term, as many people feel it is, toward Asian Americans and change the perception of that term. And then the court, just for good measure, still said, well, even if it were commercial speech, nevertheless would fail the test for regulating commercial speech because the mark is not necessarily misleading or deceptive, and there's no real government interest in disapproving of disfavored content that government seems to think is disfavored, and that it's under-inclusive because other disparaging speech exists. So that's what the, the, the majority writing for the court in the Federal Circuit case, the Rock Band's case, said there were some concurring opinions that added in, for example, that the clause is unconstitutionally vague and focusing specifically on the terms disparaging and substantial composite as part of the test. So really the Federal Circuit's decision in a robust way went through and rejected the idea that the disparagement clause is constitutional and rejected the idea that the government can use the disparagement clause to favor some trademarks over others. Yeah, that sounds like some manifest distaste in the federal circuit for the disparagement clause. Interestingly, the slants here obviously prevail, but they as well petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court, I believe, to to hear the matter, I think just to get sort of a final word. Well, the government, I think, is the one that actually uh, filed the petition for writ of certiorari, but the slants said, that's fine with us if you want to hear the case because we, we want to get on with this and, and get this decided. And then in the team case, the uh, football team also asked for review, as we've discussed. So you've got basically a, a four parties in two cases. You've got three out of the four asking for the court to review the case. Well, then with all that as, as preface, how do you see the litigation with both the Redskins and, and, and Reed Tam playing out? Do you think it's likely that the U.S. Supreme Court might grant the Redskins' request, which is somewhat unusual, to, to hear the matter before the Fourth Circuit renders a ruling? Do you think the Redskins will have to go through the normal course where they, they wait for the Fourth Circuit? How do you see the these events going forward? Look, I think anybody who's guessing uh, is always going to tell you that it's unlikely the Supreme Court is going to take a case because they reject you know, somewhere between 95 and 90, 99% of all cases. So just starting there, I think it's unlikely they're going to take this case. There is no circuit split, either of these cases. There is no circuit split right now. It is an important constitutional issue, and it raises interesting points. And this Court's not been shy about reaching out to decide First Amendment issues, even where there is no circuit split, did that uh, relatively recently in the in the Brown versus EMA case. But I think what we what we really see here is a question of whether the Supreme Court is going to want to see what the Fourth Circuit does first. And if the Fourth Circuit and the Federal Circuit agree that the disparagement clause is unconstitutional don't see a reason why the Supreme Court would disturb that and grant certiorari to either of the cases. If the Supreme Court does want to hear the TAM case, I could picture the Supreme Court saying, okay, these two cases do relate to very similar issues. It would make sense to hear them at the same time and to address both of these issues at the same time. Best guess in your opinion, once both of these 
cases are, are final, do you think the disparagement clause will still be standing? No, I do not. I think that the disparagement clause, uh, for all of the reasons that the Federal Circuit stated, plus some of the concurring opinions in the Federal Circuit case, I think it is unconstitutional. Um, I think that it just suffers too many defects under the First Amendment, and I think that it will not survive uh, in this United States Supreme Court, the same United States Supreme Court that held that there was no cause of action when the Westboro Baptist Church was protesting with really uh, distasteful messages at the funerals of American soldiers held that that was protected speech. I just can't envision a circumstance where in the face of all of the many reasons that the Federal Circuit uh, concluded that the disparagement clause is unconstitutional, that the Supreme Court would come to the conclusion that it is. I just don't think that's going to happen. I think the disparagement clause you know, is is not going to survive all of these legal challenges. As a Washington, D.C. native, I know a lot of Redskins fans that would be happy to, to hear you say that. Um, we'll, we'll find out soon enough, certainly, whether that's the case, um, and we'll go ahead and leave it there. For now, Mr. Jean-Paul Jassy of Jassy Vic. And Carolyn, thanks very much for being on the podcast to share your thoughts. I appreciate it. Thank you. One more time, that was Jean-Paul Jassy of Jassy, Vic, and Carolyn here to discuss the Disparagement Clause and how it's central to two interesting federal appellate cases presently ongoing, including one involving the Washington Redskins. I'd like to take a moment here to remind listeners that CLE credit is available for your having tuned into this show. There's a, a link to a short true-false test where this podcast appears on the dailygeneral.com website. It's a very short 10-question test. Click through that, finish the test, and you will have one hour of CLE credit. I'd like to take one moment also for just a bit of solicitation. If there are any listeners out there that have ideas about the program, thoughts on future segments, or a desire to be a guest, please get a hold of me. I'd like to speak to you. My best contact information is brian underscore cardile at dailyjournal.com. With that, let's move now to my discussion with Anna Rose Matheson. We're very happy to be joined now by Anna Rose Matheson, a partner with the California Appellate Law Group in San Francisco, a boutique firm comprising roughly 10 attorneys. There she handles many high-stakes appeals, both pertaining to state and federal matters, and is particularly well-suited to join us for our SCOTUS preview as she was a, a law clerk for Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg at the U.S. Supreme Court. Anna Rose, thanks for being on the program. Great to be back. So we're talking about Moore v. Texas, a, a case slated for October term 2016, and it presents a pretty provocative question, I think, um, that's pretty immediately riveting to folks that, that take a look at, at the question presented. And I think essentially the question is, is sort of when a criminal defendant has such a mental intellectual deficiency that he is, that that mental deficiency renders him unfit to be executed by the state for a criminal offense. I believe the, the criminal defendant here committed a, a murder in 1980. Could you walk me through the, the offenses that led to his criminal conviction? It was a bungled robbery attempt that the defendant, Bobby James Moore, had committed with two others. So the three guys had been sitting around one night playing cards, got an idea to rob a store for some money, went driving around town with a couple guns looking for a store to rob, finally picked one out, went in with the two guns, and ended up shooting one of the employees. 
Moore was later convicted as a shooter and sentenced to death. Sure. So it's it's a it's a murder, but it doesn't have some of the aggravating factors that many of the the death penalty cases we see do have. Good. Tell me maybe a little bit more about about Bobby Moore. As I think from the filings, uh, his IQ hovers on average around seventy, pretty low. I think he has failed essentially every grade that he's been in until he dropped out of I think ninth grade. Um, he has some pretty clear signs of some pretty significant mental deficiencies. Isn't that right? Yeah, it absolutely is. So at at age 13, he couldn't remember the days of the week um, or how to tell time. As you said, he'd never passed a single grade in school and ended up dropping out. Um, He had a really terrible home life, it sounds like, with domestic violence and neglect. And all of this was made worse by a traumatic head injury. He'd been on a bus trying to integrate his school, and a fight broke out. He ended up getting hit in the head with a brick and a chain, and then put a pretty bad injury from that. In his original trial and, and his direct appeal, I, I imagine that the Texas courts grappled with the question that the U.S. Supreme Court will grapple with now, whether or not he was so intellectually disabled that putting him to death would be a, a cruel and unusual punishment. But I, I take it they must have decided that he, he was mentally fit enough to be executed. Yeah, well, so the initial trial and the sets of appeals and habeas proceedings didn't actually deal with this question. Um, at, at the time, before the Supreme Court had decided its acting decision, saying that it would be a violation of cruel and unusual punishment, there was actually ways it could hurt a defendant to put forward evidence of mental disability because it could be considered a sign of future dangerousness. They had mental disability. They might not be able to learn enough not to commit a significant crime in the future. Um, So there hadn't actually been a lot of evidence of that put on earlier until after the U.S. Supreme Court decided this Atkins case, and at which point he filed for habeas relief, arguing that he did have this mental disability. And the state trial court agreed eventually and found after a two-day hearing, that he was intellectually disabled and therefore couldn't be subject to capital punishment. Maybe helping set a, a bit of a presidential context here, could you tell me a bit more about the uh, the Atkins case from the U.S. Supreme Court? I believe it was Atkins versus Virginia from, from 2002. So Atkins versus Virginia is, as you said, a 2002 case that held the death penalty cannot be imposed on those who are intellectually disabled. The court based its ruling on the Eighth Amendment, saying that imposing the death penalty on those folks would violate evolving standards of decency. In Hall versus Florida, which is a 2014 case, the court applied Atkins to a Florida rule that had set a strict 70-point IQ cutoff. So the Supreme Court's original Atkins decision hadn't set out what standards the lower court should use in determining who qualifies as intellectually disabled. So Florida had said, if you have an IQ over 70, you do not qualify as intellectually disabled as a matter of law. The Supreme Court said that's not appropriate, even though it didn't have a definition of what states should do in determining who is intellectually disabled. It said what Florida did is inappropriate. Um, And that Hall decision, it's important to note, was written by Justice Kennedy, joined by the four more liberal justices. So it was a 5-4 decision, but Justice Kennedy 
was firmly on board in terms of saying that this 70-point IQ cutoff was not appropriate. Yeah, I think I remember in reviewing that case, he made a, a pretty interesting point, I think, when he said, you know, it's, it's just not the sort of thing where you can have a strict cutoff when you're talking about execution where uh, a score of 71 means, okay, yeah, you can die, and one point lower means, okay, I guess you're you're meaningfully much, much different, and so you get to, to live. It, it That does make sense. But obviously, this uh, that sort of underscores the fact that this is a tough question to figure out where the line is drawn when you talk about who's fit and who's unfit to be put to death by the state. It, it absolutely is. And I think that's one of the things, that problem of drawing a line on something that's just inherently a spectrum that makes this such an uncomfortable thing to do. So you can get rid of a strict IQ cutoff, but you still end up with a situation where you have to say this person cannot be subject to capital punishment, but someone with just a tiny bit more functioning or ability, however you measure that, can be. And that's really one of the underlying tensions we see in all these cases. Yeah. Can you bring me up to speed a bit in in the most recent denial of of Moore's appeal by the Texas Court of Criminal Appeal? I think it was just from, from last year. Yeah. So the state trial court had actually granted Moore's habeas petition and found him intellectually disabled. But the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, which is the highest court in Texas that deals with criminal cases, the Texas Supreme Court only does civil, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals does all criminal cases, um, reversed that decision and said, no, Moore does not qualify as intellectually disabled under Atkins, and therefore he can be subject to capital punishment. And so the court in its reasoning reversing the lower court's decision really seemed to focus on a kind of a deep skepticism of the current scientific standards. And it said that the trial court was wrong to apply what the trial court believed was current medical understanding. Um, and instead, it should have followed an earlier decision of the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, which had been issued shortly after Atkins, which adopted a set of 1992 guidelines and said, no, that is, as far as we can tell, the appropriate standard to apply here, and that's what the trial court should have applied, rather than current medical knowledge. Now, that specific point seems to run a bit counter to some of the reasoning from Atkins. I, I think in in that U.S. Supreme Court opinion from 2002, as you, you talked about, Justice Stevens r- refers to the evolving standards of, of societal decency, and I think he goes um, back to give as an example, the, the bloody assizes under Lord Jeffries from, from 1680-85, I think some, some judicial processes with, with a, a fair bit of um, unfortunate results and, and procedural deficiencies where um, you know, certainly many innocent people were, were put to death. And so he points out that, that things change, things evolve. And, and so it seems like the Texas court saying, hey, we're going to use these 1992 medical definitions of what it means to be mentally deficient or mentally retarded that seems to just run counter to Justice Stevens saying, you know, these sorts of things evolve. It obviously ignores 25 years worth of, you know, evolving medical science. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely true. And the, the courts are not in sync here. Um, I think a lot of this is due to the Texas court skepticism or even hostility to the medical evidence um, or the current medical standards. Uh, the Texas court's earlier Bresenio case had come up with some of its own factors for what should be considered um, when making this determination, whether someone 
has intellectual disability, in part by analogizing to the character of Lenny from John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men. Mm-hmm. You might remember it was kind of a, a famous example of someone um, who committed a crime while while intellectually disabled. And the court said he's the sort of person that we view as, as not appropriate for capital punishment. So it came up with some standards that a, the court should use that don't have any kind of counterpoint or support in medical science. Um, and the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals spent a decent amount of its opinion talking about how subjective these medical judgments are and therefore how it didn't make sense to keep on changing them as the medical community changed because you could end up with a situation where you know, maybe later those judgments would be rejected as well. That you should just take a set of standards for what they are and keep on applying them. But that is the the kind of the specific conflicts here on whether or not to use medical evidence or these 1992 standards. The broader Eighth Amendment debate you alluded to, which sets the background for this issue, has pretty much been resolved at this point. So the Supreme Court has clearly ruled that in deciding whether a particular action violates the Eighth Amendment, we should use evolving standards of decency. We don't use the conception of what is cruel and unusual when the Bill of Rights was passed. And that pretty much has traction at this point. Everyone agrees that drawing and quartering or disemboweling or burning alive is simply not acceptable. Um, So the, the broader question, I think, of what constitutes cruel and unusual punishment has been resolved that we look at current societal norms. There's certainly some on the court who might disagree with that, but that that is pretty well settled. The narrower question here is how do you determine whether or not someone specific fits within the definition of intellectually disabled? And there you see the conflict between the U.S. Supreme Court's language in Atkins and the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals um, recent decision on whether you should use current medical standards or the medical standards from 25 years ago are good enough. As you suggest, there's some subjectivity when it comes to testing for mental capacity. The previous Eighth Amendment jurisprudential advances you know, say it's no longer okay to draw and quarter. That's that's pretty simple to implement, but with a new Eighth Amendment prescription for Mackins against executing the mentally disabled, there's still a lot of work for courts to do in figuring out who exactly that disqualifies. It's just an incredibly tricky area. It's not at all like the other Eighth Amendment rules or many of the other Eighth Amendment rules. So, for instance, a court ruled capital punishment is not appropriate for the rape of an adult woman. States might not have liked that, but it's a bright line rule, and they pretty much have to follow it. This issue is so much harder because tests for intellectual disability are somewhat subjective, and they're not easily verified. So, take DNA tests or hair tests to identify perpetrators of crimes. Right, 25 years ago, testing a strand of hair was relatively common. But science ended up evolving. Experts said, no, this isn't really catching the right people. Um, the test has all these flaws and ends up with both false negatives and false positives. So states can and certainly do drag their feet, insisting the old methods are fine. But eventually they end up having to change, right? You can do, for many of those sorts of things, you can do blind experiments. You can get hairs from people that you know, give them the experts to test. And those results are wrong half the time, 
everyone eventually is going to have to agree that the testing simply isn't reliable. As you say, there's some certainly differences of opinion between the U.S. Supreme Court and Atkins and the most recent Texas Court of Criminal Appeals opinion. Um, one thing that the, the latter court, the Texas court, suggests is that perhaps one of the problems is that Atkins doesn't necessarily provide very bright line guidance or very clear instructions as to when and when a person is or is not eligible to be executed by the state. As we said, it's you know obviously it's sort of a difficult question for which to have a bright line rule. Um, but is there is there some problem with Atkins not being you know terribly robust in its in its guidance? Well, it certainly causes a good deal of confusion. And of course, the Supreme Court wants to avoid constitutionalizing something that it doesn't have to. It hoped it could delegate this to the states um, to come up with a specific determination. And it's it's not in a great position to say, here is what intellectually disabled means, right? That is, in a sense, a scientific determination. Um, and I think that that's why it was it was hesitant to set out some sort of specific test, but you end up with a situation where the court said it violates evolving societal standards to execute someone who's intellectually disabled, but not every state agrees with those evolving standards, which of course, otherwise the court wouldn't have to decide the case in the first place. Um, and then delegates to those very states that don't necessarily agree with those standards the task of determining who fits within this ruling. And so that creates just a very deep tension that I think has been smoldering since the Atkins decision and will probably continue to do so until the court steps in. Sure. So states that might, as you say, not think that societal decency demands that folks with lower IQs not be executed. They might be pretty reluctant to, to find a person having the condition where they, they do have such a mental deficiency that they can't be executed. Exactly. Okay, maybe we could touch on one other topic that was raised by the appeal but not accepted by the Supreme Court. So as we said, the crimes here took place in 1980, so some 36 years ago. And so, uh, so Mr. Moore has, has been in jail for a tremendously long time. And I, I think one point that he raised was that it's a cognizable claim in his view that it could just be a cruel and unusual punishment, that fact alone that he's been waiting for his execution for more than 30 years. And many of those years he spent in almost constant solitary confinement. Um, that question was not accepted for review by the Supreme Court. Although, interestingly, I think when they made their order on this case, they or the court indicated that it, it would hear that question. And then a few hours later, I think there was a, an amended order, or a, a new order to say, in fact, no, that, that question would not be addressed, whether just an interminable wait for an execution was cruel and unusual. Um, I guess a couple of questions. I mean, is, it seems unusual that the, that the court would issue a cert grant and then immediately kind of excise it. Um, and then just to the issue generally, were you surprised that that issue wasn't taken up? And, and do you think that's something that could be addressed in the future? I know certainly Justices Kennedy and Breyer have made some noise uh, with reference to solitary confinement being perhaps cruel and unusual. Yeah, so the erroneous grantor review is, is quite uncommon. The Supreme Court runs a tight ship. Yeah. In terms of why they caused what happened, um, I think it's extremely unlikely that the court changed its mind after granting. That simply doesn't happen. There's there's pretty much zero chance that after they issued the order list, some justice thought, oh, no, maybe we shouldn't consider this, 
got a quick vote and got a corrected order list out. So it is almost certainly some sort of oversight or error. It's possible it was an error in the clerk's office, but my best guess is it's probably an oversight arising from the fact that the case was relisted five times before granting. So the court considered it and then put off making decision for week after week. So my guess is probably the court's very first vote on whether or not to grant this petition probably voted to potentially grant on only the first issue and to deny the second one. But some of the justices had questions about whether even that first issue was a good one and was properly presented. And they spent six weeks sending memos back and forth about whether the question was cert-worthy and was there any jurisdictional problems. And then when they finally voted on it six weeks later, they only focused on the first issue and voted to grant that one, but just noted on the list they voted to grant, forgetting that another issue had been presented originally. In terms of the question of whether that issue on long-term solitary confinement is going to be considered by the court sometime in the future, that's tough. I would certainly think it wouldn't happen until another justice comes on the court. Um, They'd want to see what the appetite of that new justice is for dealing with this question, because there's really not a lot of the court's own precedents that go to this. It's uh, it's pretty much getting into a new area and would be making a new set of rules and recognizing new societal norms that I suspect even some of the more liberal justices are a little bit wary and aren't quite sure how they how they feel about it right now. And as you noted, Justice Breyer and Kennedy have, have made some noise, but it's still, I think they're, they're probably wanting to take their time and at least figure out what the new justice who will presumably eventually end up, you know, being sworn in uh, feels about the issue as well. Sure. Yeah. That certainly seems like quite a formidable issue and one that the court would want to tackle at, uh, at full strength. Maybe we can move to forecasting a little bit. In my mind, there's a couple of different ways the the court could rule on this case. One yeah. is they could attempt to to refine Atkins or or provide more guidance than they did in the past, and and that would be a to me it seems like it would be a pretty broad ruling. They might you know now we'd have a, a new test for determining when a person could and could not be put to death. But isn't it possible also that the court could do something narrower and simply kind of kick this opinion back to the Texas Criminal Court of Appeals and say, hey. You didn't really follow Atkins. Atkins is still the rule. You just you got to use modern science. You got to use the most up to date science, which which obviously wouldn't really change the existing constitutional rule. Are those kind of the two main potential outcomes? And maybe between the two, which do you see as more likely? Yeah, I absolutely think the the narrower option is is more likely. It's certainly the easiest thing for the court to do. Um, and there's no real indication that they intend to do something broader. The question presented in this case is phrased in a narrow, somewhat negative manner. Um, basically, you know, does what Texas did here violate the Eighth Amendment rather than what should be the standard for determining intellectual disability? There's a little bit more of those broader tones in the question here, since it does refer to whether or not you can prohibit use of current medical standards. But it certainly looks like it will be a, a narrow ruling. And that's similar to what they did in the the 2014 case arising out of Florida. They said, we're not going to tell you what the standards are, but what you did is wrong. 
Okay, then then maybe the the court won't necessarily refine the test that's that's already provided in Atkins. I'd be curious to know if if you were granted full judicial power and able uh, were able to to devise the uh, the standard that should be used to answer this question. And obviously, it's a it's a very tough standard to draw. What would your rule be of determining when a person could or could not be executed by the state based on intellectual capacity? The best test I can think of is actually the one I think the court is most likely to do if it ends ruling somewhat more broadly. And that is to say that lower courts must, in determining whether someone is intellectually disabled, evaluate this using the best medical knowledge currently available. That is, it's not constitutionalizing specific factors that lower courts should use, but rather requiring the use of the best available medical knowledge. As you hint, obviously, it's it's a tricky thing for courts to try and answer a question like the one posed here. Um, do you think it's potentially the sort of question that's best left for, for the legislature? Well, the problem with the legislative fix is that it's once again frozen in time. So if the Texas legislature said, we agree with the current medical experts that this seven-part test should be used. Then 10 or 20 years down the line, when challenges arise, a court would have to decide whether that standard still applies or whether that standard itself has you know, been passed up by evolving standards. So you'd end up with this odd patchwork where courts would use the legislative standards as a baseline, but then add modifications. And of course, you'd end up with a different standard for all 50 states. Right. So as some argue, perhaps courts are in a a tough spot to make the rule here, but perhaps also the legislature is as well. But if, as you say, the the court says, well, look, all we're going to say is you got to look to the experts and listen to them, then it seems to solve that that potential issue. Yeah, exactly. And I think that goes back to one of the problems that's really deep in this case is that this is such a subjective issue that it's a very difficult one to lay down any sort of line, right? It's not like something, not like the normal tests where it can be verified one way or the other. This is something that right now, even experts in a room evaluating the same person might disagree. Um, And there's no way to say this person is right and this person's wrong. There's no way to conduct any sort of blind test to figure out whether or not someone is or isn't intellectually disabled. So I think that's, causing a lot of attention in this case, but it certainly is true that the courts, of anyone who might be in a good position to do it, a court isn't in the best position. Okay. Maybe one last one. We've suggested that the court could make a a broad ruling or a narrow ruling. Do you think that the outcome, though, will more likely than not be that that the court is unsatisfied with what the the ruling that the the Texas court made and that it will be reversed in in some manner? Yes, I, I would definitely think that's, that will, is likely to happen. The court's insistence on the use of these old standards and the refusal to use current medical testimony really seems like the sort of thing that runs counter to the U.S. Supreme Court's language in Atkins and in Hall. And really with the reasoning of those cases as well, it suggests a unwillingness to embrace the newer standards that would result in, in, in many cases in more people 
being declared unfit for capital punishment. Um, and so I, I do think the court will end up saying the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals got it wrong. Okay. Well, I guess we'll, we'll find out in, in the next several months. It'll be an interesting case to watch. Anna Rose Matheson of the California Appellate Law Group. Really appreciate you being part of our preview segment here and, uh, and joining the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. program for August 12th, 2016 is complete. I'd like to take this opportunity to tender very sincere gratitude to both of my guests, Jean-Paul Jesse and Anna Rose Matheson. And I'd like to thank you as well, our listener, for tuning in. It's much appreciated. Don't forget that for having listened, you can receive an hour of CLE credit very easily just by clicking through the link on the dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears and completing a short true-false test. I have a few other folks to thank here on the production team, including Ellen Ireland, Helen Rikens, Nick Sonnenberg, Dominic Fracasa, and of course our editor, David Houston, and Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. Mm-hmm.